This is The Green Desk on 95BFM. This week's interview is one I've wanted to do for a long time. I spoke with Michael Apathy, a psychotherapist, ecotherapist and activist, about climate anxiety. The American Psychological Association defines climate anxiety as a chronic fear of environmental doom, as predictions for the future of our planet grow increasingly dire. This manifests itself for many, myself included, in a range of emotions from grief to anger. I spoke to Michael about how he encourages his clients to deal with these emotions in a productive way, our collective amnesia when it comes to the climate, and in the wake of COVID-19, how we cope with multiple overlapping crises. He began by explaining ecotherapy, which, despite having been around for a number of years in the professions of counselling, psychology and psychotherapy, is still not well defined. I don't think it's very well defined at all, unfortunately. You know, I I think it really ranges between a wide range of ideas and different practices. You know, some people talk about ecotherapy as going for a walk in a beautiful spot in nature and experiencing the calming effect of that. So it's just something one might do for oneself, for one's own mental health. So it can be right down that kind of end of things, and I guess including research that, that we have, which has validated the value of that, to, you know, ecotherapy can also be clinicians, mental health professionals doing therapy sessions and working with people through experiential or psychological processes in nature to connect people more with nature. It's not, not solely um, mental health professionals, I should say, sorry. And also it includes, I think, a a more radical end of that, which is really trying to use psychological and therapeutic tools and understanding to address, you know, the massive systemic climate ecological crisis that that we're in globally and to try and respond to that. So it's a really wide and and ill-defined sort of field. And I wondered if you could comment on that idea of getting out into nature and the healing properties of that, especially since we've been locked inside for a significant part of this year. But I also understand that you have some concerns about the kind of one-sided nature of that relationship we have with nature. I think it's one of these funny situations where we get a lot of research and we get university studies and we get brain imaging and, and all of these sorts of things to kind of tell us something that subjectively a lot of us already know for ourselves. You know, we know that being in nature can be calming, can be rejuvenating, and that it's just good for us on many different levels. There are interesting nuances to that. For instance, the way certain different environments affect us differently. But in a way, it's one of these areas of research that tells us something that we kind of know already. The reservation that you mentioned is that being out in nature, going and being on a beautiful bush walk, that sort of thing can be really good for us, you know, stressed out, you know, hardworking capitalist sort of creatures. But it doesn't necessarily in any way guarantee that we're going to take care of that piece of nature or nature in general in the way that it's taking care of us. So that kind of concern about, you know, are are we actually having a a relationship of reciprocity with nature or just using a piece of nature for our own benefit? 
And one of the places where I butted up against this personally and really explored into it is a number of years ago, I was really, I, I think I was still just beginning to come to terms with the immensity of the ecological crisis that we're in. And I was going for a drive through some beautiful patch of the South Island. And I remember looking at the, the mountains around me and all of the lush bush and the beauty out there. And what I was seeing was so vast and looked so healthy and it was really hard for me to, in a sense, match that up with what I was intellectually coming to terms with, that we're actually in an incredibly fragile time ecologically. And this kind of um, strange phenomenon where we're sometimes almost like immersing ourselves in nature reassures us that nature is bountiful and it's doing well when it's not. The flip side of that was some really interesting research where researchers put people in a room and asked them a number of questions about their perceptions of the environment the climate crisis and so forth. And there were two conditions in that study. The only thing they altered, they were exactly the same questions, the same room and everything. But in one room, there was a healthy living pot plant on the table next to where they're answering the questions. And in the other setup, there was a dried out, dead, dying pot plant. And the people who answered those questions in the condition with the dead, dying pot plant actually answered much more accurately to the state of nature and we're able to think about the fact that we're in this kind of devastated and depleted sort of position. To cut a long explanation short, I wish it were a simple a story as we get people out in nature more and they feel replenished and they feel connected with nature and want to protect nature in return, but it's, it's not so simple. Talking about the idea of the ecological crisis, I was wondering how, I mean, 2020 has been an extremely stressful year for a number of people for a number of reasons. And I was wondering how you kind of deal with multiple crises at one time, which might feel like they have different senses of immediacy. To me, that's the, the million-dollar question that I think about probably on a daily basis of how do we face this and how do we face all of this well? And because I think we're entering a period where our existence is going to be more and more an experience of overlapping continual different crises. I, I hate to say something that sounds so dark, that amidst that, we can kind of have our attention pulled around or feel like headless chickens or even just kind of argue with each other about what crisis is most deserving of our attention. You know, if we look about at this recent period, we had the Australian bushfires really brought home for many of us the climate and ecological crisis because they were clearly, you know, much, much worsened by climate change. Then we had COVID-19 and now we're in the midst of this, you know, deep reckoning with white supremacy and police brutality. And those could seem like separate crises, but they're all different manifestations of the same systems, the same colonialist white supremacist sort of systems that enable the climate crisis. Maybe to share something to make that a little bit more personal. In March last year, Cyclone Edai came through Mozambique and it devastated the city of Vera. It destroyed 90% of the city and it was a city of about 500,000 people. And Greta Thunberg called it absolutely correctly when she said, look, this is the first major city to be destroyed by climate change. And part of what hit me so hard about this was seeing the tiny amount of, of coverage this received worldwide and media and that sort of thing. And it particularly hit hard for me because 
I live in Christchurch, and Christchurch is not that dissimilar in population size to Vera. And I thought about if that same disaster had hit Christchurch and destroyed 90% of Christchurch, clearly, you know, the coverage would have been so much larger. People would have paid attention because it would have been affecting so many white people. So it's this kind of deep systemic racism that allows us to tune out the impact of climate change that are felt disproportionately by non-white people at this stage. So, you know, that was a real personal reckoning with that on a very deep level for me, not just knowing these things intellectually and seeing it unfold, but, you know, walking through the streets of Christchurch and really imagining what would those streets look like if 90% of the buildings had been destroyed. And what that brought up to me, and I think I'm in no way exceptional or unusual in this, is, you know, a tremendous amount of grief and rage and also guilt and shame. And the process of going through that emotional, I suppose, crucible and allowing myself to feel that as deeply as possible, that's the best way that I've found to cope with these things. Because, you know, human beings, we are designed to be emotional. We are designed to experience grief and rage and love and shame and guilt. All of those emotions are actually adaptive. So being able to find ways to experience that and then to be able to direct that energy into directions that feel meaningful. To me, a lot of that is activism and eco-psychology, but for different people, that may be different things. Yeah, and I did want to touch on something that I also feel personally is that complete range and cycle of emotions from feeling, you know, extremely driven to take action to then a profound sadness to a sense of hopelessness and then a sense of anger. And I was wondering how do you advise people to deal with all those emotions in a productive way? Well, I do treat the grief and the rage and and all of that that I mentioned, I do treat them as very productive helpful emotions. You know, you mentioned hopelessness, and I can certainly relate. I have my moments of hopelessness, and I'm not immune. But in my way of thinking, in my experience, I don't treat hopelessness as one of those productive, healthy emotions. In fact, I don't treat it as an emotion. Hopelessness, in my way of thinking, is usually actually a way to go distant emotionally, as if if we go hopeless, that we can just distance ourselves from the tremendous suffering and the tragedy that we're seeing, as if we just go hopeless and distance ourselves, then we can have a sense of rest or peace or so forth. But in my experience, the hopelessness has never actually felt restful or peaceful in the least. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of ways of working with things like the hopelessness. And similarly with the anxiety, I think it's very, very useful that we're having, you know, recognition and conversations about climate anxiety. The anxiety that we often feel, which can be really paralytic, is actually not caused directly by the climate crisis itself. But the anxiety is a response to our emotions about the climate crisis. So typically when people feel whatever the emotions are, when they give themselves permission and space and a way in to access the emotions that lie under the anxiety, and often that's going to be grief or rage, then the anxiety drops down massively and that's a much more pleasant and productive space to be in. Yeah, because I have a friend who wrote an article about her own personal experiences with climate anxiety and she noted something about how her friends would sort of pat her on the back and tell her she was such a good person for worrying. But, I mean, worrying isn't a productive or healthy place to be in. What effect does that have on the mind to be in a constant state of stress? 
Yeah, well, often we do kind of confuse worry with care, almost like as if we have to worry about someone we love as an expression of care or as if we didn't worry about them as if we didn't care. So I certainly don't want anyone to have to worry more than a little bit because, you know, the fact is individually we can have an influence and we can have our response, but we're also incredibly powerless. So, you know, the worrying doesn't have to be there to care and, and the worry certainly doesn't give us any degree of control over, over these massive difficulties. And what you're saying there too about the individual, I do feel like a lot of pressure is put on the individual at the moment. We're seeing a trend currently that's very much on the consumer and it's about things like, you know, reducing your own personal waste. And it feels like it can lead to this kind of unhealthy obsession with a perfectionism that might also not be productive. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that I feel really furious about, to be honest, you know, because a lot of this attempt to put the responsibility on individuals is actually something that has been fostered by the fossil fuel companies. They've helpfully put out these things like the carbon trackers where you can tally up your individual carbon footprint because they don't want to be held accountable and they don't want large-scale systemic change. They don't mind if a few individuals try and take one or two less flights or try and drive their car a little less. That's not going to threaten their bottom line. What they really don't want is people getting together and organizing and taking collective responsibility. So, yeah, I, I really try not to get pulled into that or encourage myself to, to get pulled into the kind of obsessive minutiae of exactly every environmental decision we make. Um, I found it very freeing that George Monbiot basically said, forget about all the details, just think about how often you're flying and how much meat you eat. I wonder also, though, how do you then cope with the inevitable hypocrisy when you do eat meat once in a while or fly once in a while? Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I wish I could remember there was one famous actress who came and took part in one of the big massive Extinction Rebellion protests in London last year. And she came, as famous actors often do, to lend their star power, to lend their kind of weight to the movement. And it's really welcome. And people leveled that charge at her. Oh, well, you're being a hypocrite. You flew across the Atlantic to come to this protest. And I really loved her response. She didn't try to defend herself. She didn't try and argue. She said, yeah, of course, I'm a hypocrite about this stuff. And the fact is, you know, I, I basically think we all are. I remember last year turning up to a bank manager to have a polite discussion with them about fossil fuel divestment. And this bank manager was all for fossil fuels and was really trying to provoke me. And he said, well, how did you get here today? He was expecting that I drove my car so he could call me a hypocrite of that. So I said, truthfully, I said, no, no, I bicycled. Well, how about the steel for that? Wasn't that made with fossil fuels? And I just don't engage with those sorts of conversations. We exist within systems that they guarantee that we're all hypocritical and that we can't act out easily the deep values that most of us have. Because most of us do actually care deeply about our future and about the climate and about the environment. So we're in a system that makes hypocrites of all of us, so we need to dismantle those systems. Going back to that talk about systems, and this ties back into what you were talking about earlier as well, about these interlinked crises. You talk in your article a bit about trauma and collective amnesia. So the idea of collective amnesia is that collectively we can have a tendency to forget facts that are kind of inconvenient to us 
inconvenient to our lifestyles, to our relationships, to our sense of comfort. So there's massive collective amnesia around the trauma of colonialism, of slavery, all of those sorts of things. You know, it's less often used in this way, but I also believe that we kind of have a collective amnesia or failure to accurately imagine the future as well. And for instance, I think this plays out around the climate. If we just think about what we're currently on track for, you know, we're, we're seeing multiple different really credible, well-researched voices that are saying, look, we've, we've got a high possibility of widespread societal collapse happening within the next 10 years. You know, that's a huge thing to come to terms with. And I think mostly we operate in various places along a kind of spectrum of denial about that. And, you know, we just kind of forget it and go on with our lives in this sort of amnesiac, compartmentalizing sort of way, which is characteristic of trauma. And I think whether we're talking about the traumas of the past or whether we're talking about the kind of trauma when young people have to kind of wake up and become climate strikers and realize that, well, hang on, these sorts of bonds that we have with our parents, with the older generation, where we expect to be cared for, we expect to be held in mind, that's the way we develop our sense of self. Really, none of that is being done around the climate. You know, the older, the parental generation is effectively sacrificing the next upcoming generation. And that's a kind of deep attachment trauma. And mostly these kind of traumas are not being dealt with. They're being dealt with through amnesia, through forgetting, through compartmentalization. I'm really glad you brought up young people because I also did really want to ask about how we talk to young people and children especially about how we educate them on the seriousness of the climate emergency without causing them undue stress and affecting their mental health negatively. Yeah, I I don't pretend to have the answers there. And in my work as a psychotherapist, I do really work with adults rather than with children. So I'm not an expert, but... I think there is this ongoing kind of discussion about how do we have these conversations and there are people who I respect and and make a reasonable argument to say, for instance, that that we shouldn't talk about what we're in as a climate crisis, that we shouldn't call it a crisis, that essentially if we take that kind of bold and explicit approach, it's going to have a negative impact on the mental health of young people. And I do think it needs to be a nuanced conversation. But my stance is the traumatic thing isn't knowing that we're in a crisis and we're in deep, deep trouble. I think the traumatic thing is having to go through that alone. So I'm very, very heartened by the fact that, you know, we've had the recent curriculum changes where climate change is beginning to be taught much more seriously in schools in New Zealand. What I would like to see is more of a psychological, personal, emotional component alongside that as well, because I think if we're giving people the information about what's going on, we also need to support people to digest that well and to grieve and to feel their feelings and to make sense of how this really alters their whole sense of the world around. So I would love to see a lot of that work being done in schools. I would love to see that being funded. I would like to see people being trained on a large scale as facilitators for that sort of work or in peer support sort of roles. And I think we can face actually very, very well, we can come to terms with what's happening, whether we're old people, whether we're middle-aged, whether we're adolescents, whether we're children, but none of us can face this well by ourselves.
That was Michael Apathy from Lucid Psychotherapy down in Christchurch, talking about coping with climate anxiety in a productive way. You can find out more about his work on their website, where they also do online sessions. That was The Green Desk on 95 BFM. Tihei Modi Order.